an introvert. I don't know if you're an introvert, but I get I get a little bit nervous before each one of these. And I, I kind of, I mean, I thrive off of that nervousness. But I, do, you, do you ever like when you do interviews like this, or I don't know if you've done podcasts before, but I know you've done written interviews like with content. Do you get nervous before them? Um, I think I used to. I do so much of it now that like, I just try to be like bigger than my, whatever is making me nervous, potentially. Hmm. Um, like, cause I have to give like a lot of talks from time to time. Um, you know, where I have to like stand up on stage and like kind of be a little bit like bare my soul a little bit. And sometimes that like reaction is a little nerve wracking, but I, I think not, not so much. Do you think you're an introvert or an extrovert? I don't, I don't know. I have no idea what I maybe, I don't know, is both or neither. I don't know. Some people say that there's an ambivert, which is the mix of the two. Oh, ambivert. I don't know if you know Mike McGee. That's a term he uses a lot. Oh, I do know Mike McGee. He's on our board. Ah. Excellent. Um, and I ambivert, huh? That's a good one. Yeah, I definitely like I live by myself and um, you know, like I like that quiet that quietness and I like to come home and just like not do anything. When you had to start going on stage and doing things on stage, were you were you practiced in that or did you have to actually learn that skill? Um, I've always liked doing it. I've always been pretty good at it. Um you know, like all through like college, like I loved giving presentations, um, through high school. I, w- I really liked it as well. I just, I don't have that, um, that fear that some people talk about when they say, when they talk about public speaking. So before you do something like that, is there like a ritual or something you go through? You have to hype yourself up or you're just ready to go the moment it's time to go on stage. I'm usually just, I'm usually pretty ready to go. Wow. Um, I don't like ritual, anything like I suppose there's a glass of wine handy. I'll have a glass of wine <laughs> or beer or something. And that'll usually like, I'll just like get, get loose, you know? And when you say you're going up there to bear your soul, like, can you, can you break that down a little bit more so that we can understand what you mean? Like, what are you talking about up there? Yeah. Um, so I think sometimes when we do this work, right, like we do this heartfelt, very nonprofit um, work. And for me, like the, where the work comes from is a huge part of, um, how I tell the story and I like to tell stories. So, um, when I go up there and I'm on stage and I have to talk about like, you know, why is this work important? You know, I'm really just, I'm trying to sell people on me, me, the individual. Um, and so my story has a lot to do with that. Um, in 2000, 11 I well I'm originally from the Mojave Desert and I moved here a bunch of years ago and uh, when I go up there to tell my story it almost always includes um, the death of my parents I lost my dad in 2011 and my mom in 2012 Um, and it was a really really hard year for me but I I just felt like um, you know they died when they were 55 they were pretty young and I Um, I was a little bit more nihilistic, you know, at like 24 or so that I thought if they died when they were 55, then I'm pretty much halfway over. Like my life is halfway over too. Um, I was just being super negative then. (laughs) And, um, I thought that I could be more impactful working for other people than I could be by just working for myself. And so I kind of started the nonprofit based around the idea that I'd be helping other artists do do their thing and do it well and safely. 
is it a strange thing that you, you know, like for grief is usually it's something very personal. Is it a, a strange thing to have to go through that in in a public way on a continual basis? You know, like even right now, you had to kind of explain that to break it down. Is it weird to continually be, I don't know, rehashing, but just retelling that story that's so personal? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, especially because they're, they're like strangers who know things about me. Like, I don't know anything about you, but I'm on stage trying to tell you like why this is important, why this is important to me. And it, it does it like, um, some, some days are easier than others. Like sometimes I'll get a little choked up, but I'm not afraid of that being a part of the story, a part of my, you know, my story, the story of the company. And, um, it is weird to have to, to share that, but it's so important. Um, like it's, it's vital to the starting of the company. Cause I feel like everything that I do now is kind of sort of to honor them or to like, um, you know, I think that we, we try to impress our parents and, um, I don't really have anybody left to impress. And so to like get up on stage, maybe I'm like sort of trying to impress everybody else, you know? Yeah. I imagine like there's, um, there's a, seen from a tv show that's like long forgotten what tv show it was or whatever but it stuck in my head and they were talking about is two two men talking about the death of the father and this idea that like that you're on a ladder and that all of a sudden when you're when your parent dies you you realize like oh i'm i'm the top rung of the ladder now there's there's nothing above me what what is that like to go through? Like to really just like like you said, um, not necessarily the grief, because I know you you go through talking about that a lot. But I mean the process of realizing that there's nobody that you're responsible to, quote unquote, above you. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I've, uh, huh. I think um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm the oldest in in my family. I've got I've got two older brothers, but they have a different they have a different father. Um, but as far as like my mother and my father's kids, I'm their oldest. And so to me, I feel like now I am like the, at the ripe old age of 31, like the matriarch of my part of the family. And, um, some of that feels like a little bit egoy just to say out loud. Um, but the other part of it is like the very real responsibilities that come with that, like, I have to remind all the siblings like, Hey, it's Cody's birthday. Hey, like, don't forget to text Todd. It's, you know, he's got an anniversary coming up, you know? So I, I have to like, I'm now like in charge of that, um, role and, um, like tangibly all of those like dumb certificates you get as a kid, um, for, you know, track and field or, you know, best art competition, all of that like crap that just lives at your parents' house. I have all of everybody's crap now. And so it's like having actual baggage to take with. So you basically, you become like the repository of, of history. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the historian now basically. And I have so many questions about like where we came from, like what my parents like were doing when they were my age, you know, I have all these questions that I'll never ever have answers to. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because I, I definitely would not be doing the work that I'm doing now had they not like passed away and that not had that like really traumatic impact on my life because I, 
Uh, and I'm thankful for that. It's, it, and that's kind of weird too. That's interesting that you say that. Um, I had a conversation on this show with my friend Giovanni and he talked about something very similar. His father died when he was, um, when he was in high school. And he says that like, because of his father's death, he didn't feel like he would be making music and doing what he's doing now if his father hadn't died. And I mean, what is it like to have that complex, you know, like, I mean, those are completely at odds with each other in a way, emotionally, you know, like there's, is there a guilt to that? Oh, totally. Absolutely. Um, And like the guilt has kind of subsided now because I think that guilt is just like something that your brain makes up to, for you to stress about. (laughs) Hmm. And, um, like, yeah, I definitely felt really guilty for a long time about like being thankful that like they were, they were really sick. They both had, um, cancer. They're big drinkers. So they, they, they wasted themselves away. And part of me feels like a little bit bad even about that part of it. But I don't know. There's something that's like, so like, I feel like they gave me a gift of not having to worry about them anymore. And did the way that they died, did that affect your relationship to alcohol in any way? Like, like, did you like go through like a disgust phase or something like that? Um, did I go? No, I would say no, not really. I think seeing like it, Oh man, college was one thing. And then when you keep that party rolling after college, you know, my folks didn't, didn't go to school or anything like that, but just to see the after effect of like what that level of like substance abuse can do was pretty hard um, to watch and has definitely, definitely slowed me down. Um, but, you know, like they're drinking Coors Lights and I'm having, you know, like a, like a fine uh, IPA with like a, a delightful uh, grapefruit finish, you know? And it's like, it's like four Coors Lights in one glass. <laughs> yeah, a little dip, so then I can only have two. <laughs> um going back to being on stage and and rehashing some of or not necessarily rehashing but uh discussing this in front of of people there's a story of um Paul Simon when he wrote the bridge over troubled waters which is to him it was a it was about his relationship with Carrie Fisher and it's it's a very emotional song for him he, like he couldn't even sing it himself and he talks about how having to do that song and like that being their song it kind of, in some way, it ruined his relationship to that song because he did it so often he could no longer feel it anymore. Do you ever feel that that's going to, in some way, obviously you're never going to stop feeling the grief of your parents, but you're going to disassociate with the story in some way? I'm I'm, I'm pretty scared of that happening because I, I have to tell the story so often. Um, and I'm, I'm scared of, that happening because once it becomes just like words falling out of my mouth, then it's like, then I'll feel like I'm just pimping this story, you know? Hmm. And how do you, I mean, how do you, how does one even begin to like define what that line is where you go, Oh, I'm starting to get there. You you think it's just an emotional thing or you think there's actually like a, like a limit on it? Like, okay, I've been doing this for two years. That's enough. No, I don't, I don't think I'll, I don't, I don't know. It just seems so important to me. You know, it, it seems important to say, and I just don't want, I have to, I have to, like, that's my responsibility is to not let that become so commonplace that I stop feeling it. Like that's, 
that's just me. Like, I think that I have to remember to not take this for granted. How do you, I mean, even begin to go about doing that? Is it like some personal rituals or something, you know, like you have your, you know, like, okay, this is my, this is my practice conversation of this topic, but I need this time alone where I do these things because that reminds me what it really feels like. Yeah. I think I definitely, um, when you were talking about like ritualistic things, like when I have big meetings or something like that, I'll have what I call a ceremonial cry. (laughs) And so I think that I just, it's important for me to remember to take specific time to honor their contribution to my life and to, to be just like really mindful. So that way it, it doesn't come off automatic or, or fake or anything like that. When I'm giving this presentation, it's still, I still feel it, but I think um, having, being able to set time aside to give them what they're owed um, has been really important to me. And we've kind of been dancing on the periphery of the company, but do you want to explain what the company is and why you think that this message is so core to explaining it and why, why you feel like you, you need to continually um, tell people that story? Um, because I think storytelling and people being vulnerable builds empathy. And I'm really into building empathy for the arts and through the arts. And I think that it's, um, it's a compelling narrative. So I run a nonprofit and it's called the Exhibition District. And um, started in 2014. And I just started with the goal to create these economic opportunities for artists through city beautification. So primarily through murals and stuff like that. And then um, we added a secondary program called Local Color, where we're working to reactivate some of the buildings in in San Jose that are slated for demo as creative spaces for artists. So um, we do shows and open mics, and we have like 30 artists working in there as with you know, subsidized studio spaces. Um, and so like, that's a kind of like an overview of what the company, the company does. And, um, I feel that, Oh, that, that, that part, the death of my parents is relevant because, um, because I, I came up to San Jose to go to San Jose state for art and design. And, um, got my degree, graduated, and I was doing murals, like interior commissions, like for Cafe Stretch and um, Good Karma and Original Gravity. And so I started like pulling in all of these like mural gigs. And then after they, and I was really like trying to help support them in a lot of what my parents that is, um, sending money home and stuff like that. And so I, after they passed away, I had taken pretty considerable time off of like work and life to kind of like deal to like cope with that whole situation. And so I, um, it it was then when I thought that like I could be more impactful working for other people than if I was just working for myself. So that's kind of like, it was just one of those like life check-in things where it's like, Hey, real, real shit just got real. And now, now I have to, like get get the work done. There, there's real work to do. And for all the people listening, will all the people listening will definitely recognize the name Local Color because the previous episodes we've had Ben and Drew both on. Oh, cool! Yes, yeah, so, so Local Color is is heavily represented in this season of the podcast. 
That's awesome. That's my baby, my big 20,000 square foot humongous baby. Yeah, and that used to be a Ross, right? It was. It was a Ross, and it was um, Black Sea Gallery, and then before that, it was Woolworths. And how did you get the idea to take, you know, like a, basically a gutted Ross and then make it into a creative space? Um, I was with, um, I, I did this really amazing fellowship with National Art Strategies, um, and so every, you know, every month you had to do a certain amount of, like, quote-unquote homework. Um, and so one of the, one of, you know, it's like, take, you know, walk around your city, take stock of everything that's there, you know, just these little kind of assignments. And one of them, I was watching this lecture at like one and a half speed because I just like, well, I wanted to get through it. <laughs> and so it's going really fast. And I'm like, I'm trying to listen and pay attention, but I'm also trying to do like six other things because I think, I don't know, I'm just, I'm bad at that. Um, and I just, I caught this little nugget kind of like out of the corner of my ear and the guy, the lecturer was like, you, we need to start defining our communities through their assets and not their deficits. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. Like those are words that really reflect like how I feel. Um, and the idea of being like kind of recycling resourcefulness, um, being really scrappy, trying new things. Um, I don't censor myself or like say, no, I shouldn't do that. Like I'll definitely like jump in two feet, both feet, um, all the time. But I just thought instead of getting pissed off about like all of the empty buildings and all of the blank walls, which is kind of what we were already doing, we turned them into canvases. So for me, it was just really like a perspective shift. Um, and so instead of being pissed off about something, it's just another opportunity to like test or, or try. So, um, that's, I, I, I have a bunch of artists who needed studio spaces who I wanted to help and the community needs a cool place to gather. San Jose has a lack of free things to do, um, in my opinion. And I wanted to be one of those cool free things. So then I was looking around the, the South, well, not South first, first street basically has been like my stomping ground. I worked at Good Karma. My little sister works at OG. Like I know all these all these like bar and restaurant people in the, in the industry. And so when Ross closed down, I was just like, I would, I would think about it and there was something there and I'd think about it and I knew that there was something there. So, um, I started pacing and I, usually when I'm pacing, that means I'm onto something. And I was just like, what if we could get this building? What if we could move in artists? Like what, what if we, we had like a little stage or we could do art classes and, and we could do this and we could do that. And so like the, the idea could just kind of kept growing and growing and growing until it was um, into fruition. And, and I think from the, from the time I said it out loud to myself and to like a bunch of other people to when we got the keys to the building was so fast. It was like two weeks or something like that. It was so fast. Wow. So we didn't even have time to like, I mean, we were exhausted. The whole team was just like fried and we, we gutted it. We, we got the keys like in December, the, the first of December. And then we gutted all of the metal off the wall. We, we fixed everything up. We repainted, we stapled and spit shined everything basically. And um, that was about two weeks turnaround. So we were, we were really, I mean, there was like 15 of us going like whole in on it. Was it super gnarly in there when you guys first got in? No, it was really creepy. Like it's just so clean, like so white, you know? 
Um, it wasn't too gnarly except for they had all the metal, the racks and stuff on the walls that we had to pull off. And we pulled out almost two tons of metal. Wow. Um, Surprised they didn't take that kind of stuff with them. Well, I think, I think it was just more expensive for them to, to do that, um, to send the labor over to do it. Then they, they just fireballed it. They just left it there. That's like, um, have you, there's over on, down on tenant, there's all these buildings, these huge buildings that corporations used to be in and they're all vacant. And they've been vacant for like five to 10 years. And I asked somebody one time, I'm like, why are these buildings vacant? And they're like, well, they make more money off of the insurance for the building being vacant than they do to like reoccupy them. It's so shitty too, right? Because they're just like blighting entire neighborhoods by doing that. And do you, I mean, and they still have like gardeners going out there and like blowing the, the parking lots. It's just, it's stupid. What a like gratuitous, like waste of, Ugh, that's, that grosses me out so much. I think sometimes developers can be so shitty. Did you have to like negotiate that kind of stuff with, with uh, the owners of that building? You know, like, were they weighing that like, well, we're making this much off of the, you know, I don't know if they have what that insurance policy is even called to be honest, but I mean, what was that negotiation process like? It was so easy. And I, I, I know that this is going to be, it's totally unique to this, these property owners specifically. They, they used to run a, um, a furniture gallery. They're, they're these really nice people. Um, well, they're businessy people, but they're, you know, they're kind of nice. And uh, hell, they're, they're letting us use their building. So that's pretty nice. Um, it was pretty easy to do. Um, we got in contact with them through our partnership with the Downtown Association. Um, because I'd been doing a lot of the mural work and like fundraising and paying artists and doing murals that, that we worked pretty closely together. And so I pit, when I pitched this idea to them, um, then they were able to connect directly to the property owners who are already pretty arts um, sympathetic. And they were more than happy to let us kind of just steward the building. So we really feel like care, like we are caretakers of that, of that building. Sounds like a kismet situation where you just like the perfect storm. It was perfect. I couldn't believe how fast, like, then I was like, oh man, what did I get myself into? Because everything <laughs> happened so fast. And like, now I'm doing like building operations and I have a, I have an arts degree. Like I'm a waitress, you know? And I, I know I eventually have to stop saying that, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know. For so, like, I think back and I'm just like, man, I was just like bartending and like being just kind of a little shithead around downtown. And then, this, I had this idea and then the idea had two ideas. And now I, now I know more than I would ever care to know about dumpster rentals and, uh, how to deal with like 30 eccentric, uh, lively people <laughs> in building. So sensitive. They're so sensitive. That brings up a really interesting point too. You know, like, I feel like there are a lot of people, we know that there are a lot of people out there that are just, you know, kind of doing jobs that necessarily aren't fulfilling who they are. They're just jobs. You know, like you said, waitressing or bartending. Um, for a lot of people, those jobs are just about making the money. You know, they don't yeah. they don't dream to be necessarily a bartender or a waitress, not to disparage the people who do. But those same people also have ideas like you did. What yeah. what do you think uh gave you the faith to actually like leap? to actually do it. I think it was just because I had, what do I have to lose? You know, at that point I was just like, I have to, I felt so much like I needed to just stop doing 
like mundane average shit and just be like extra. Like I know that it's there and it's in me. I've always, always, always felt that way. So you think it was, it was like this, uh, there was like a line, you know, like you crossed it and you're like, okay, this is it. I, it's time now. And it really was the, 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 when my mom passed away, my dad passed away first and my mom passed away. And I was just like, what am I doing with my life? I have like, I have 25 years left to live and what am I doing with it? I'm bartending. I love bartending. I love grapefruit IPAs. Like I love a good sour, but like, I just really was able to take that leap because if the worst thing that it, I'm going to get a little emotional. If the worst thing that could happen had already happened, like what else was there to be scared of? Like, I don't get the building. Like we don't get funding. Like when, like I already did the hardest shit in the whole world. Um, knock on wood. And um, like, there's just nothing left to be afraid of after going through that. So it really, I mean, it truly is interwoven into the story of everything because it was your, it was your kick. Yeah. It was a huge kick. It was like a donkey kick. And don't, I wouldn't worry that you're, you're getting desensitized to it because it's obvious that you aren't. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Let's, let's talk a little bit about murals. We've, we've mentioned that a few times. How, (laughs) what led you to that? I mean, that like most people would look at a mural and go, I have no idea how that happens. How do you end up being a muralist? Um, I was working. So I, you know, my dream uh, several years ago was to like be an artist. Like I was going to make all of this really dope work, like show it, you know, across the United States and all these beautiful galleries. And I was just going to be this like debutante of like punk rock art. Um, and then that's a really, really hard to do. And, and I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and I needed to make money cause I was, I mean, at this point I was kind of, um, I was pretty significantly under housed. Um, I was living in a warehouse, uh, down, down below 280, south of 280. And, um, I just needed to like make rent like really, really bad. And I was living my sister. I just moved my sister up here from Southern California. She got in a little bit of trouble, Cody. And, um, <laughs> and I brought her up here because I just, she needed a fresh start. So, um, when I, you know, I was living in this warehouse and I needed to make more money or I at least needed to, to not spend money on food. So I was working at good karma at the time. And I told Ryan, well, we came up with this idea that I was going to paint the ceiling. Um, didn't end up painting the ceiling. I painted panels on the floor and then moved them to the ceiling. But I got like, you know, 50% cash, 50% trade. And so I, I eat at Good Karma. You know, I, just, I wanted to have places where I could like go to take a client and say, this is my work. Can I get you lunch? And it would just go on this forever tab. Um, and so I kind of, it kind of just like fell into my lap. And once I did that one, then I was like, oh, mural girl, went down to Cafe Stretch and I did a couple of their murals. And then I, I don't know, I think I was just like um, um, easy to hire for, for mural work too. And it was just, it was just a lot of fun. I, I, I really enjoyed doing it. And um, I think that I have both the, um, 
the talent to be able to, or the practice, I should say, to be able to paint murals. And um, also the other side of the brain that deals with the insurance and um, budgeting for materials and renting equipment and all of that stuff that comes with it. And so I wanted to share that value with other artists who are not so good sometimes with the insurance and the budgeting and the safety. How do you begin to like wrap your head around the scale? You know, because I, like drawing something, I think, you know, going smaller, we kind of inherently understand, but going bigger is is something that maybe it's for most people is just beyond comp- comprehension. Yeah, I think, you, and part of that is the fear of it too, right? Like if you're, you just gotta, you just gotta do it. You just gotta jump in. And um, like, I think as artists, like you inherit, you know how to do it. You know how to paint. You're just painting with like a, a really big brush now and on a really big surface. And the, I think the only thing that's really scary is like the heights sometimes, <laughs> um, but also the, um, the time being able to estimate the time that it'll take to do something like that. And I mean, other than that, it's just, I mean, it's just careful planning. You could do anything. It's just paint. And how many, the first one you did, how many times did you have to go get more paint? Um, I did a really good job on that one. So, uh, maybe like one or two times, but on the, (laughs) on the Vida Abudante mural on the Dianza hotel, we definitely had to go back several times. So that's a good, it's like a 3000 square foot wall. I feel like if I approached that, I would go in and be like, oh, this will, this will work. You know, one can will cover it. No, it's like one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of like multiplying square footage times, you know, this many gallons plus this little cover this much square feet. And so it's just estimating how much paint you'll need and then like adding 50% to that. And there's an interesting point too. So there's some mathematics involved in it for sure. Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I would be kicking myself if I heard myself say this like years ago, but I really like doing the budgeting and the spreadsheets for it. I think it's so fun or it's like at least rewarding. There's something about, you know, like I'm, I'm a to-do list person. Like I love to-do lists and stuff like that. There's something about those tangible, you're taking these abstract ideas and you're putting it into something tangible, you know, like money. Okay. Now I have a budget. There's something satisfying about that. Yeah. And I just think that like laying out your plans too is, is cause you can do, you can do almost anything. You just got to like, this is my goal and these are the steps I need to take. And you just go through the steps and then you have your outcome. I'm going to rehash a, I guess this would be a third hand story now. <laughs> <laughs> so one of our previous guests, um, Alicia Oxy interviewed somebody on her podcast, um, and he was telling a story about he was at some event and he was sitting next to a millionaire or a billionaire. I'm not sure which one. Um, either way, the guy looked over at him at one point. And he said, you know, the difference between me and all these people in the room, I plan. Yeah. And I thought that was really powerful because it's like, it's, 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 it's just like you said, it's about those concrete things, you know, like the steps, like, okay, here's my plan. I put it down. I can accomplish this because I see how it fits together. Yeah, you buy the paint, you rent the scissor lift, you you tell your insurance agent, you know, there's ways to do it. You know, how am I going to get my drawing like that big on the side of this wall? Like, well, we got a couple of options. We can do it. We can drop the grid, which is a pain in the ass. Um, we could take your design and we could project it, which is something that we've done um, to get the outline. 
there's all sorts of different ways to like make something happen. Do you think like, I get the feeling sometimes I look at the current state of like society and I feel like we have so much technology to make things easier, but do you ever feel like they make so many things to make things easier that when it comes down to do something like that, which you're not really, there's not really a program that's going to do those things for you. You have to use your actual brain. Do you ever feel like that's what deters people is like that? Oh, I have to think now. And that's, that's going to be tiring. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's uncomfortable, right? Like it's uncomfortable to have to like math and well, for me anyways, and then like, and remember to feed myself and stay hydrated. You know, it's like, it's like asking a lot of a, of a person or of like a group, but it's totally, it's totally doable. And I think that some people just get afraid of the scale, you know, the, the scale and scope of, of what goes into like, and maybe that's being extra, right? Like maybe that's being extra. It's being beyond like, I don't want to say ex- extraordinary because like that feels egoy too, but like, that's what it, if that's what it takes and it's not even that much to, to like get outside of what's comfortable I think extraordinary is the right word because, I mean, we use extraordinary as like this term of like uh, grandiose, you know, greatness. But all it really means is beyond the ordinary. Just a little, even a little bit. Right. <laughs> you know, like the, the person who who works, you know, 10 hour shifts and then goes home and writes for 30 minutes. That's extraordinary because they're doing something out of the ordinary. They're not just, you know, comatosing themselves and going to bed. Uh-huh. It takes a lot. And I know that like a lot of people out there, they struggle with that. I think everybody does. Even the people who succeed and do things, they still struggle with it. I mean, you read enough stories about novelists and they talk about how people think, oh, I fit, you wrote one book, you can write more. No, every book is as difficult as the first one was. Yeah. How do you, how do you battle those things? You know, like how do you keep yourself motivated? I think I... I do a, a little bit more like personal sacrificing. Um, I don't know. I don't always feed myself. I don't always keep myself hydrated like a little house plant. Um, but I did. I, for me personally, I, I have to get some studio time in. Um, so thir- actually tomorrow night, Thursday night is like where I'm going to go and I'm going to get some painting done. But if I don't get like, the creative time in where I can like creatively like kind of express myself through visual arts, then like I'm not going to be successful or thoughtful or um, creative when it comes to my work. Like I really do need both. There's a, an adage in Hollywood that they say when, when you're making a movie, there's time, money and quality pick two because you never get all three. Yeah, I don't think I think money's out for the nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like in, even going back to what you're just saying there, there's like a different triad for for everyone. You know, it's like it's, there's needs. You know, like feeding yourself and paying the bills, and then there's personal life. You know, like love life or friends and things like that. And then there's dreams. Pick two. It's so hard. And it, I mean, it really does feel like that sometimes. Well, it's kind of like um, it, you know what it is? It's it's almost like okay, if we think about the other side of that, of that triad, right? Like the, the, so what I'm trying to get at is, do you, do you remember playing like a game called Bang, Mary Kill? No. You pick three of your friends. 
like you have to assign them bang marry kill and it's kind of the same it's kind of the same thing i don't know why i just thought about that but that's really funny now everybody's going to be googling that bang marry kill (laughs) (laughs) it's a really easy game (laughs) the winners (laughs) when you approach murals what is the process you know like what what do you have to do before you even begin Ooh, okay. Yes, this is a good topic. Um, so before we start a mural, we have to find a wall. Um, we have to find a property owner behind the wall that is willing to let us do some work. Um, and we have to find funding. And the funding part is like the boring part. That's the other half of my job, which is grant writing. But the real fun part is comes with like meeting all of these interesting characters who play a vital role in San Jose and they're, they're the property owners. So um, I get to meet a lot of these, uh, a lot of these property people and sometimes they've had buildings here for a long time. And so that's really exciting. Um, we work only with independent property owners and not with city owned buildings. Cause that's just like a nightmare. Um, and we usually start with a sketch and we bring the sketch that sits on top of the wall, like a picture of the wall, basically. So we have like a rendering. We come to them first, like instead of saying, hey, can we do a mural here? We say, this is the mural that we'd like to paint here. Do you have any feedback for us? Or, and, and is this going to be okay with you? So that way we're like skipping a whole part of the question, which is like asking if we can, then going back and forth for like two months about timelines and this and that. So we just like skip a bunch of stuff and say, this is what we'd like to paint. Is this okay with you? I, if so, I need you to sign here. And then we go into all of the collection of the materials and the equipment facilitation, um, which is also kind of fun because I get to drive around in a like a articulated boom lift four by four or like really rad scissor lift. And it's like playing with all that equipment makes me feel like such a badass. Um, and then we, we buy all of our materials and we just get out there and get it done. So when you say you, you do a sketch, is that a paper sketch first before you do the rendering? Um, yeah, usually. Um, some artists like to work on a tablet. Some artists like to work on paper. I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned. I'm an old I like to, to like draw it out, draw the, the shape of the wall, the size, and everything like that. Um, some people will just take a picture of it and just like be able to draw directly on top of the picture, which is amazing. When you when you take yours, um, since they are on paper, are you using Photoshop to do the renders or what? I am woefully inadequate at using creative software. Um, I have to outsource that, actually. Um, <laughs> we do. So you mentioned Ben. Sometimes Ben will help us out with these renderings because he's really, really good at it. Um, other times I'll get one of the other artists to be like, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you just put this image on top of this picture? And apparently it's super easy to do. I just, I'm not the person to do it. So I outsource that and I ask a lot of favors when it comes to that kind of thing. And from what it sounds like, you have a lot of logistics, you know, with the equipment and um, permits, I imagine. How do you keep track of all that stuff? I mean, do you have a notebook or, you know, do you do something on your phone where you keep track of everything? Um, It is not my strong suit, if I'm being 100% authentic. Um, keeping track of all that stuff is not super easy for me. I, I have to go through like a very 
meticulous checklist for every single one. So that way I know that I have all of my certificates of insurance. Everybody's been added as additionally insured. Like the equipment has been rented and will be dropped off at nine o'clock, which apparently in equipment time is 7 a.m. instead of 9 p.m. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just a lot of like kind of balancing all of these like spinning, crazy spinning plates. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not my favorite part and I'm not very good at it. I wish that I had somebody else who was really good at it to do that. So if I hire, that's the kind of thing I would hire for right now. And do you have to store all that, all those documents? Yeah, but it's just on, it's on drive. It's just, Google Drive has like made my life. I don't know how people did this ever before. With filing cabinets, (laughs) probably. Filing cabinets. Oh, geez. And then trying to find a document, like one specific, oh, what a nightmare. Even like accounting made so much easier through the internet. So basically you just go in and you make a folder for, for each project and then dump everything into it. Yep. And I'm sloppy about the way I dump it. And my operations director, Alina, always gets on me. And does somebody go through and rename those things so that they have like some standardized naming yeah. scheme or something? It, it, it makes it so much easier. It's just that that level of minutia is like, makes me want to scratch my eyes out because I would so much rather be like actually working on the mural or like coming up with ideas or like doing my pace when I get excited. Um, and then to like have to like go back and rename all these fucking files. Like that drives me up the wall. Cause I'm like, this is a waste of my time, <laughs> but it isn't ultimately like when I'm searching for this document again, sometime in the, in the future, it makes my life so much easier. And I just like, have to pat myself on the back for grinning and bearing it. And when you're painting something that people probably wonder is, you know, if you normally somebody paints on canvas, they'll go buy, you know, a tube of acrylic or whatever. When you're painting a mural, are you using house paint? You know, like what are you using? We're using Benjamin Moore, low sheen exterior, high, high grade house paint. Wow. And so you're using the big brushes and all of that. Yep. Or rollers or spray paint, just something that covers like a big amount of space. One artist we worked with, Jim, Jim Miner, he's amazing. He's incredible. He's a tattooist as well. He, um, and because he's a tattooist, he came out there with the tiniest little brushes. And I was like, Jim, <laughs> what are you doing? And he was like, I need to get in here. And I'm like, you are you are batshit crazy if you think we're doing any more of work with this teeny little brush. Details you can't even, so fine you can't even see them five feet out. <laughs> and how do you define, you know, how, how detailed you get on something? You know, is there a standard distance you go, okay, this is where the average person is going to view from? It's kind of up to the artist. Like, however, you know, we have, we don't pay them hourly. We, we give them one fat stipend and it's like, you're going to, you're going to, commit to doing this design that you committed to doing. Um, this is what I'm paying you. And you can, you can extend that out to four weeks or you can do it in two, but you're still getting paid the same. What about you when you do them? Um, like when I do murals, mm-hmm. I am pretty washy. Like I like to thinned out paint um, layered over and over again. Um, I use really like high pigment stuff. Um, and I am guilty of, becoming too wrapped up in the details. (laughs) And when you say you're, you're washing, so you're, you're mixing it with water or with the cutter. Um, usually just, usually just water Uh, when you're out there and it's hot and you know, we don't really have a lot of time to like 
mess around with these crazy little little tinctures and stuff. So we usually just hose it down. And since they're house paints, what's the what's the resilience on these? I mean, like, how long do they usually last? About ten years. Wow, that's impressive. It is. I think that when they're highly exposed to sunlight, like there's going to be some fading over time. But we usually clear coat everything. Um, helps with you know if there's any graffiti, which there's been ridiculously small amount of graffiti um, on the on the work that we do. But in just in case there is, we have a, a anti graffiti coat, which is a sacrificial coat, um, and you just go out there with some soap and water, and then reapply the sacrifice. Oh, interesting. So it's not like a Teflon thing. It's just like something that you're going to wash away. Yeah. It's a little soap and water. It should, should usually take it off, but then you have to re, you know, you can do that five or six times in the same spot and then you got to recoat. And how did you learn about all this stuff? Did you just have to like somebody teach you? You had to like Google all this stuff about paint. Like where, where did the knowledge begin? <sighs> kind of just jumping in, but asking other like people in industry, like, Hey, what do you use when you do this? What do you use when you do this? And so it's a little bit of like collecting knowledge and it's a little bit is kind of like we know that this brand of paint fades in six years where this one will stay for 10 and um it's just like i i am not ever afraid of like calling and asking dumb questions so i have to call like south bay paints several times for a mural project and be like hey are we gonna go with the corotech you know like v45 are we gonna do the v50 this time and then they'll give me like information and i'm not afraid to ask dumb questions and and they're not that dumb anyways because they're kind of specific and technical so in a way it's like being a contractor it is it's very it very much feels like that and our artists are you know we contract with them but definitely knowing a little bit of everything and you just can't be afraid to ask and then if you don't know and you do the the wrong thing or the dumb thing then you're going to look like even more of an idiot and how are you managing all of your your team interaction? You know, are you just text messaging, phone calls, emails, Slack? We Slack. Really? Yeah, we just actually. <laughs> congratulations to us! We just got all thirty of our artists on Slack, and they are so painfully unresponsive. <laughs> uh, but that's just artists, you know. They're so um, finicky and delicate and sensitive and and beautiful and special, and everybody's different and. Uh, and they don't always, you know, get back to, they don't always get back to us when we need them to get back to us. And it makes me really want to call back all the people I blew off when I was in like college and just after college and be like, Hey, you know how five years ago, it took me three and a half weeks to respond to your email. I'm really sorry about that. Cause I feel like now I'm getting like my karma. I know what you mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm following up things for this show. I feel that daily. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were talking about your fellowship earlier, how did you get that? How did you get your fellowship? Um, definitely by getting the first fellowship. So that was the second one that I've done. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's the second one that I, I'd ever done. And um, I got it because I made a little video and I submitted it to this foundation or this organization. And then they, they, they picked me. And, um, the Knight foundation, um, paid for my, like a scholarship essentially. So I got to fly out to Vermont, um, and hang out with all these other like rad, rad urbanists from all around the country. So now I have all these amazing friends in like Detroit and Charlotte and, um, 
Minneapolis. I've got all these cool friends that are doing really amazing work all across the country. And um, I just wrote an essay and then like made a little video and talked genuinely about myself and my goals and kind of what I want to do. Um, like as a project, like kind of project-based stuff. And for anybody listening that has no idea what a fellowship is, you want to kind of explain, especially since you've done a few of them? Um, yeah. So I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to not Google it. So <laughs> standard answer. Um, a fellowship is like a, it's almost like a class, but you get selected for it. So it's kind of like, I don't know what, I guess going to the all-stars or something like that, where you, you apply. Um, and sometimes there's grant money. They'll like, they'll pay you money to go do something. Um, or sometimes you pay them for this, like very hands-on, um, very focused, um, experience. So for me doing with national art strategies, it was very much like we talk about design centered thinking and building for people first and, um, you know, what makes a park good, public spaces. Like, so it's kind of like all inclusive, like urbanism, urban planning, um, the idea about like thinking about human centered design. So the, for me, that's what my fellowship means. What, that's what that fellowship was for, for me and probably for lots of other people. But I think that they do fellowships for like medical fellowships where I, I don't know what a medical fellowship would be, but it sounds gross. <laughs> um, so you, you do you move somewhere for this or is it where you are? Um, I, I, so I flew out to Vermont once and I flew out to um, Toronto for another one. So usually it's just like a week in a nice hotel or in like a secluded retreat center in the rolling countryside hills of Vermont. Um, so I still get to live. I still live here in San Jose, um, but I'll do like online classwork and stuff like that. That must be one of the advantages of, of the internet that they can do more of it remotely. I know that for yeah. a while they, they probably still have them, but there were fellowships where, you know, it's like six month or a year fellowship in blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's a fancy one. Yeah. Those are, those are intense. I'm sure. That's that. Yeah. I mean, that's a big sacrifice, but I think maybe that's kind of what a medical fe- fellowship would be. I think it's probably kind of like a residency type thing. It is kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess in a lot of ways it is kind of like a residency, like, but like a residency you serve somewhere else. What was that experience like? It was, I mean, like, like you said, it's, it's kind of like a class, but I imagine it's different, you know, like, was it, um, do you feel like you were being trained or was it just kind of like uh, pumping you with inspiration? It's kind of both, um, without, without, without feeling like, you know, bark twice for yes. And, <laughs> you know, without that like official like training feel, but there is like a lot of opportunity to really like make these very human connections with other people. And that's the kind of thing that they want. Cause they want to grow, you know, a network of like entrepreneurial creatives who, who can bounce ideas off of each other from all over the place. But just to like, the first time I got to go on one, I was, I felt like such a movie star. I felt like the coolest person in the whole world. Cause I got to like fly to Toronto and use my passport. Um, and I just like stay in a nice hotel, walk around, like learn all these, like 
amazing things from these incredible people who I still adore. Um, and it's just so, uh, it was so like life for me. I want to be like, it was kind of life changing because it, it kind of was. And are those like the type of things that you put on a resume, you know, like you're going to, or um, like, for example, you're negotiating the building and you go, here's who I am. And you throw out the fellowships. Is I mean, is that how it works afterwards? I, yeah, I, I mean, definitely. Well, cause it kind of adds a little bit of clout, even if you don't know who national art strategies is, it's like a big, big word, like a big name, national art strategies. <laughs> um, and so I, I definitely, I use it for, for stuff like that. I say, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a Knight fellow. I am a national, I'm a, a fellow for the a creative community fellow with national art strategies. And it just, for me, it makes me feel like there's water, like, like there's something tangible that I have to show from mm-hmm. that. That's not just like this silly little award in a little plastic um, sleeve. Yeah, that could be, I imagine can be kind of a difficult thing. Um, just being in the creative field because so much of the creative field is intangible. You know, yeah. Like going up to meet somebody, you know, like somebody says, Oh, I went to blah, blah, blah. Um, college and then i went to brown for law school i don't even know if they have law school um my resident or if you're a doctor my residency was here and you know there's all these things you know i belong to this club and that for artists we're kind of like you know well uh i i did art um i do art uh i painted uh, 20 canvases you know like there's not the same kind of thing so i can imagine that that adds to sort of a clout that's missing there's a little validity in it for sure and especially because then i use that to get more um yeah like when i had to give my bio in like a like a grant application or something like that they're like oh we know we know, we know national art strategies like the people that are kind of in this like industry like they they know they know what national art strategy is like they know what night night arts is and so for me to even just like have that to be able to name drop a little bit here and there um definitely adds and if you don't know who it is then it just sounds really good <laughs> so what is i mean this is kind of a big question but like, what is your goal like where what are you moving towards with with all the things you're doing what's your ultimate like pie in the sky um i think Two things on that. First, I really try hard. Like, I think goals are important and we should all be working towards being better people and having goals, but also like, kind of like, 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 like fuck that a little bit because I would hate to like, this is what I always say to myself, like in a year, my goals are going to probably have shifted because I like that flexibility and I don't let like, younger Aaron tell older Aaron what to do. So for me, like setting up these expectations, um, I have a little bit of a goal, but it's kind of like a, it's a pretty loosey goosey goal. Um, and I, I like it that way because I want it to be able to change as resources shift as knowledge shifts as like the landscape of San Jose is changing. But then the other part of that, <laughs> the other hat says that my, one of my biggest goals is to, um, work through, like advocacy and like policy change around artists live workspaces. I think that would be super cool. So eventually I'd like to have property that um, is in San Jose in downtown 
where I have space for artists to, to live and work and for, um, to really change the idea of what it means to be a community center. Um, because I think that building community is the only way that San Jose is going to maintain authenticity through this whole change, this whole like landscape change that we're going through. And I want to be a part of that conversation. So ultimately I want to have like a center, like that would be the tangible part of it. Um, to have live workspace, um, community center, uh, performing arts, murals, public art, kind of like all in one little area. But I don't know if I'll even be satisfied with, I don't know if I'll ever be satisfied with what (laughs) I do, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's the, that's my current goal is to find a permanent space to, to, I mean, all of this local color stuff, it was always meant as a prototype. We had a, we have an end date. That end date will be sometime in the next six months or so. Um, and then my new job is to go for local color 2.0, which is instead of being this like still focuses on interim use, but will allow us to kind of build up capital to buy real estate. When you say that you want to redefine what it means to be a community center, what do you think like people think of as a community center now? And how do you think that needs to change? I think that the term is just dusty and I can't think of it. I can't think of like a more relevant. I've been racking my brain for two years trying to think of something else. That's not the term community center. Um, just because I think that the term is a little dusty. Kind of feels like a place when you hear it, you're like, that's where the seniors are going to go to do yoga. And um, you know, they're going to every once in a while they'll have, it, it, it kind of feels whitewashed, doesn't it? It, and that's part of it too, I think, because like I, I'm half Mexican. I, I didn't grow up going to like a community center or anything like that. Um, but there's something about the term community center that just, I don't know, it just, it rubs me, it feels too clinical. Yeah, like it's planned or something. Forced, forced and planned a little bit. And so I've been racking my brain to try to come up with a new term for it. And I just, I don't, I don't know. But the way that I want to kind of work in the re- redefinition, redefining. Yeah, redefinition. Like, Redefinition. <laughs> I just make up words <laughs> when I don't know. Sometimes it works. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know because, like, I, I while I don't want to like knock on like other community centers, right? Like, that's the that's the goal. I'm not trying to hate on like Roosevelt or or um, that one that's in the Hensley district. I can't remember off the top of my head. But oh, you know what it is? Is that they feel city. They feel bureaucratic. They feel city run. They feel like a rentable little venue. Um, all things that I want to do, minus the city run part, um, but do it like really, really cool. Yeah, I think that's maybe that's a, I mean, like you said, it's not about knocking community centers for what they do. It's, it's more just like the term, when we hear that term, it, it makes us think of the way that they are now. And it sounds like you want to do something that uh, maybe appeals to a broader spectrum of the community. It feels like yeah. current community centers, while they do serve wonderful purposes, are kind of more focused towards children, families, and um, the elderly. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think that that I feel that way. But that's because I haven't, I haven't stepped foot in a community center like in years. You know, right? For all we know, they could be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, here I am talking shit, and I haven't even gone in like like ten years, probably. It's a weird thing, though. I mean, that's that's something that we 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 carry with us. It's like there's just 
words have connotations and sometimes you can't get over even though the reality might be different just the connotation of that term it, i think most people listening can agree that that's kind of what they imagine too yeah yeah um, i want to gear it really towards um so, like semi youth i wanted but i wanted to be really focused on like not necessarily people my age, but like for aspiring producers, like people who are already doing stuff, not necessarily, I'm going to bite my tongue on this one, but not necessarily like students, but like actual practicing artists, producers, printers, people who just need that like one leg up to be able to have like a cool place to perform or to make artwork. Um, but also aren't going to be able to afford like these like fancy studios that pop up from time to time. Hmm. I think that that just makes it like inherently um, a cooler demographic. So it's just like the relevance is there and I want to be able to provide space for um, emerging producers, emerging artists, all these cool people who just, who just, they need these kinds of subsidies in order to be creative. And I think without it, then San Jose is going to, could be, could be a really boring place in like five years when, or 10 years when some of the older producers kind of age out, older promoters age out, some of the older artists, you know? Um, I think that if we aren't providing these cool creative spaces for people to do these things, then we're going to be pretty devoid of interesting things happening. I think that that is an important, important point because um, part of when, if you, if you're, Anybody listening is probably, I would say, over the age of 25. You might kind of remember the world before um, the way it is now when there were bookstores and there were record stores and, you know, they were independent and they were weird or they're little, you know, like head shops and things like that in cities. Now, when you go to now, there's going to be a bunch of people going to disagree with me that there are still cities that have this. And I'm sure. But when you go to San Jose, we don't have any of that stuff anymore. Um, yeah. I was downtown. I actually had a meeting with Daniel from content. We had coffee and we we're hanging out. And then uh, actually we, we saw you. Um, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, <laughs> we, he left. And so I was like, Oh, I might as well just spend a little bit of time downtown. I started walking around. I'm like, Oh my God, there's nothing to do unless I want to eat or go into a business. There's literally nothing for me to do here. And that sucks. I think that that sucks. I wish that I wish that we could keep our hours more open and and you know, like I I love the idea that you can come in and do something for free. We just don't have that, and I think it's so so vital. And when when that initial barrier of like even just like walking into a gallery or walking into you know like a place that doesn't maybe it doesn't feel like it's, it's yours. Like sometimes galleries feel a little stuffy or they feel a little pretentious and maybe like some of our mentally ill community don't feel like it's okay for them to walk into the space. But this is a space that like anybody can walk in, anybody can walk through as long as you're not being like violent or disrespectful, like come, come on in, you know? And I don't think that there are any other places in San Jose where you can kind of do that. except for maybe the library. I guess it's a good time for you maybe to kind of break down even more what, what happens at Local Color. I mean, what is, we've kind of um, sketched out the idea of what Local Color is, but you want to really explain to people what it is? Um, yes. So it is uh, unlike anything San Jose has currently. Um, we are open studios. So we are 
depending on who I'm talking to, it's a creative co-working space. Or if I'm talking to an artist, it's a bunch of shared art studios in a 20,000 square foot box. It's just big, empty building with no holes or rooms or anything. It's just like a big box with art studios in the back. And the front half is like kind of San Jose themed performance and community space. So we have a mural arts wall. Um, you know, we, we are a mural arts nonprofit. Uh, I guess we're a couple of different things nonprofit now. But we started as a mural arts nonprofit, and it's important that we have a space where the community can come out, paint whatever the hell they want on the wall, and then we white it out like every, I don't know, two weeks or something like that. Um, we have a gallery, but more than a gallery, we really wanted to focus on the studio spaces being um, open and public and accessible because I think that outside of traditional gallery space, I really wanted to focus on San Jose's history of manufacturing, um, you know, because we're, we're a agricultural manufacturing, manufacturing <laughs> um, kind of city. And I think that the creation of the, of things is what is like, is like the workmanship that San Jose is known for. And I think that that's innovation and like providing these spaces for artists is, I mean, if you can't tell, it's really, really close to my heart. Um, and I, I also think that by walking through, you're seeing artwork in different stages of complete. And I think that when you see kind of the slow progression of art being made, it fosters empathy for the arts. So that way, when I'm charging you, you know, 1500 bucks for a, a canvas, you know that I spent $1,500 worth of hours on it. And what's really interesting about the way that it, at least the back section looks is, it's kind of like um I can't really I can't really put my my description on an exact description, but it's almost like a trade show, you know, like everybody has a booth. And yeah. you know, like Drew's is like it's he's doing that sports theme stuff right now. So like he has that astroturf down and like you know, he's got the Wheaties boxes that he's painted and all that. But then you have Jeremiah's space, which is just like canvases stacked and it looks just like a studio. It's, so Drew's is like more uh, of a a stall, you know, like a sales stall. And it's really fascinating, like, concept. Yeah, we had, um, there were a couple of us, me, um, Drew, Ben, and George, all, um, well, they started it. These guys, the, the three boys started it. And so they, they wanted to have each um, artist space, like, have a theme to it. So that way, like you walk through and you're like getting little glimpses into like a art studio themed sports, I don't know, like sports something, sports arena, like trophy case. It's like kind of everything, you know? Um, and like Ben is his famous sign painter, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> George has like VTA themed stuff. So he's got like this cool like transit feel. And then mine, I wanted to do like a little shop of horrors, but like, but with flowers and just kind of like in my aesthetic. So I, there are a couple of us who are trying to build out our spaces to be more like the, like what, how do you say this? It's almost like we wanted them to be like art studios, but like really funky and everyone like different and unique. So it's not like an art studio themed art studio. It's like a transit themed or like witchy um, alchemist themed kind of space. Kind of like those themed hotels. You know, like tonight, I'm going to stay in the uh, medieval room. The caveman room. Yeah. 
So it's like it's like the Madonna Inn of creativity. <laughs> or the yellow submarine. Every door takes you to a different world. Yeah, like what is that show people really like? Doctor Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Doctor Strange. It's a different one. <laughs> um, you know, where it's just like you go in. I, I assume this is what happens. You go into this blue thing and then it zaps you to, I don't know, the 20s or something. <laughs> I've never seen the show. It's bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside. <laughs> it's kind of, did you read House of Leaves? No, I haven't. Oh, so good. It's about a house whose interior dimensions are larger than its exterior dimensions. And it's kind of like a really scary version of that concept. And it's funny that you bring that up because uh, I usually end every episode of Creative Minds asking, what book do you think that I should read next? Oh, I'm ahead of you. Is that the book that you would recommend? I feel like it has to be now just because it's so, <laughs> it's so scary and it's so weird and it's, it's unlike anything I've ever read before. Um, it's almost like a choose your own adventure. It's, it's a really, the layout of it is just, it's fascinating. So for no real intellectual value, but just for like, just to be like involved, it's like a participatory read. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like, um, it, you have to read it in paper, right? It wouldn't work in an ebook to. format, right? Yeah, you have to. And you just like engage with the book in a different way. Like you're, the book, it becomes like a physical thing. Um, it is a physical thing, but you know, like it becomes something that you're like actively engaged in. I I got so scared reading it. I was reading it at Good Karma, and yeah, granted, I probably had a couple of those breakthrough IPAs. <laughs> I was reading the book, and I was so scared of the book that I had to like sit in. It, we had barrels outside at the time. I had to like sit in this barrel and like think for a little bit. But the book is it's it's nuts. It's really it's fun. It's a fun fun read, but it's scary. And I want to ask, I want to go back to one thing real quick that you mentioned yeah. that I think would be important considering all the things we talked about. You mentioned policy change. What do you think that policy change needs to be? I think one of the biggest issues that we have in San Jose is um, our housing. And um, I think that we need affordable housing. And I think that that's, that's almost like bottom line to so many issues in San Jose. And I kind of, I see that with a lot of the artists that I work with, that they're pretty underhoused. Um, like they, you know, I've got, I've got guys who are sleeping on couches. I got guys who are like, you know, doubled up in, in rooms and stuff like that with, with other buddies or with family members, especially. And it breaks my heart that I have these like 20, like mid twenties kids who don't, who can't afford a place to live. So they, they get, sardine into family homes or in you know on a couch with a bud and um i think ultimately the bottom line comes back to affordable housing and it's something that um i wish i could be more engaged in i'm just not as i'm just not as passionate about housing as i am about the arts and i think aces in their places so eventually i'm going to build up to um kind of thinking about rezoning an area or try to rezone an area. I have this, this vision of this like, um, adorable trailer park. I grew up in a trailer park and I think that they're magical. And I just want to be able to incorporate some of these like visions that I have around the arts and housing together. And that would make me feel like I did something with my life. Do you want to tell everybody listening now that they've heard all of all about you, 
who you are exactly and what you do and where they can find you? So we're on, we're pretty active on Instagram under uh, local color SJ. Um, same with Facebook. Me personally, I'm an artist and I'm a creator and I'm, um, I'm, I'm on Instagram at mobs, M A U V dot E S, um, which is my favorite color. And yeah, I guess Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. And then local color is located at 27 South first street. So we are right on the corner of Santa Clara and first or nearly on the corner. And we're open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in the evenings. 